You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian, the show that gets into the minds of your favourite comics and finds out how they tick, how they tick best and how you can tick more effectively and creatively and of course what happens when they stop ticking and get all depressed. Uh, You can go to ComediansComedian.com to get hold of all sorts of free stuff including a recent stand-up album of my own, a compilation of the best of the first 150 episodes of this podcast plus a list of the all-time top 10 as voted for by you the listener. You can also find out about my upcoming stand-up tour. All of that from ComediansComedian.com Now, very great thanks go to John at Sitting Room Comedy in Knaresborough for allowing me a space in which to record with this next gentleman, someone with whom I've worked for many years and who will be known to you. He occupies a very peculiar position in the comedy firmament, which uh, we will discuss, uh, performing as he does for both children and adults and children via the medium of a cartoon boy and now also adults via the medium. Uh, of a double act with a cartoon boy to tell you all about that and uh, some really pretty in-depth process stuff, some animation tricks and tips and uh, and the uh, the pitfalls and positive elements of choosing such a, a medium for his comedy. This is the very wonderful Howard Reed. We've both just driven to Nairsborough. Yes. Independently. Yes. How long did your drive take? Because I, I should say, from the point of view, from the point of view of uh, the listener, um, just to make everyone aware, we've literally walked into the room two minutes ago, and we thought we'd start with the fun, drawn-out, sunken yeah, eye energy of joy. both having spent all day in the car. The joy of of yeah. That's the, that's just, I just spent all day doing admin and then the rest of the day doing driving and that's just the shittest bit of the job. It's just like, you've got to do a beautiful thing, but it's right over there. And uh, yeah, so mine was, uh, I don't know, because I rely on my computer too much now. I just tell it how long it's... I tell it where I'm going and it tells me when I'm going to get there and it's disturbingly accurate yes. about how... Like, it was it was uh, 4.57 the whole way. Like, I got... Well, it was 4.45... And then I got into delays and it went to 4.57. And I thought, well, I can catch that up. Oh, you can't. It, <laughs> it clearly knows how I drive. What, um, what this always reminds me of Andrew Bird. Lovely Andrew Bird. Who he says he regards the sat-nav as the sort of ghost car time trial. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, one you're trying yeah. to beat. But these days, technologically, you've I've just got can't. so much better. You can't, yeah. Um, you have come from, where do you live? Letchworth. In Letchworth, North Letchworth, in lovely yeah. Letchworth. And I have come from Bristol today. And uh, I spent five and a half hours driving. How long was your drive? Um, I... I'm trying to think when I left. Um, uh, I reckon it was three and a half. Ah, so yeah, no, you loser, win. coward. You win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was, I was like, <laughs> that's the. Oh yeah, well, yeah, that's the. So 
That said, the listener will, I'm sure, forgive us if we are sort of audibly rubbing our eyes and faces as we do the thing. Um, it's really good. I'm really pleased to have you on the show. You're someone who lots of people have said, oh, you should get Howard Reed on the show. That's very nice to hear. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I have been pleasantly surprised in the last... Because, like, um, just... So, in the last year, I've been sort of moving back towards doing adult stuff with my animation stuff. And I've been really pleasantly surprised how many people are glad to have me back. Because I... My natural assumption is people... Because I do something different and I do kids stuff and I do stuff that isn't... Which I don't know if anyone else regards it as not proper stand-up, but I don't regard it as... I, I, I feel like I'm cheating or I'm doing something weird. But it's lovely to know that people like it and like what I do. Because the thing is, I'm, I'm a sort of a jack of lots of different trades. For so, people that don't know what it is that you do. So it's I, not just different. It's, I think it's unique. Is it unique? I think so, yeah. I was kind of... In my head, I was thinking, I am starting a new genre. Um, and I'm not, because no one else is doing it. Um, so <laughs> oh, I, yeah, right. It would, need to, it would need to catch on to be a genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I do straight stand-up, and I uh, also... But my thing I'm best known for is uh, an app called Big Howard, Little Howard, where it's me interacting with an animated cartoon, um, um, and, uh, which I animate myself. Uh, I think I possibly have created the most labour-intensive way of delivering comedy. Um, I was thinking about it. I was trying to think of anyone else who does, who who makes it so much hard work for himself. Yes, because uh, it's not just it's not ventriloquism, but it, I mean, is it a bit like a ventax? I, because it's you, it's you kind of doing or elements of it. Are you doing patter like bring the thing out? No, not that thing. Do you, yeah. know, you, you have that sort of antagonistic relationship with little. I've Hat. done it in lots of different ways, and I'm currently working on a way of making it more live. Because I've just done uh, my first hour of stand up, uh, hour of um, little Howard stuff for a stand up adult audience. Um, first one in twelve years, and. Uh, and it was really interesting going back to that and working out, firstly, how Edinburgh's changed, and secondly, how the show works and how it doesn't work. And uh, through doing Edinburgh, and I love doing Edinburgh, and was really proud of the show, but I then saw what, what the flaws in it are. And I spent most of Edinburgh, because the weird thing was I had lovely previews all the way through all, all the previews I did were gorgeous which were all in comedy clubs and so I'm playing to comedy people whereas in Edinburgh you're not necessarily playing to comedy people you're playing the people your flyers have got through the door and they're not necessarily your people uh, and I f- had to sell the show for the first time because it was playing in comedy clubs where people were pleased to see me and come to see me in particular whereas most people in Edinburgh come to see the person who has the best flyer that they've been given that day and so I had a lot of audiences sitting there, sort of arms folded, this kill make me laugh. Um, and I spent the Edinburgh going and seeing shows and seeing how other people do that, that getting over that hump of... But of course, my problem is that half of my double act is on rails. He's, he delivers the lines, which on paper are fucking great lines. Um, but if you, if you don't, if they're not buying it, You've only got so much wriggle room to improvise around it. And I started doing lots of... I went to Mark Ford, um, who's a yes. fantastic improviser, in his Brilliant. entire show. I think he possibly does excess, inaccessibly weird material on purpose so that he can then attack the audience for not laughing at it. Yes, and it was a, sure one of know. the funniest hours of comedy I've seen in ages. And, part, I think, and I love improvisation, and I love... I do lots of This Is Your Trial and things like that, and I do MC gigs for Screaming for Murder where I just improvised the whole show which I love I think partly because my comedy day job 
is very much scripted and very much... And so I spent the entirety of Edinburgh... You mean, you mean the act by day yeah, job? My, my, so yeah, no, so I've got several day jobs, but um, all in comedy. But, um, but my, so my main act, my Big Howard, Little Howard act, Little Howard says the next line when I click the clicker, he says the next line. And so I'm currently developing a way that that isn't the case, that after every line, he can comment on how the joke went, on how the audience are reacting, how someone in the audience is looking at him. Um, uh, he's doing all the lines that as a left field stand-up I developed when an audience weren't going with what I was doing um, gotcha. and so in Edinburgh I was doing all those lines to win the audience back pick on the one who wasn't laughing and then at the end of Edinburgh I thought why am I do- I, I shouldn't be doing that he should be doing that yes. and I'm re- really getting and literally in the last two weeks I've been developing this method of doing Little Howard where by he can riff around the gig and and it's an it's a really and I've done done three literally done three shows of it in the last week the first one of which was a complete disaster because I just couldn't get my head around performing and pressing the it's done with foot pedals and clickers and things and oh so it's new so it's not one it's not one handheld thing it can't be buttons. because because the handheld clickers I can only find them that have got um two buttons and, and the odd but so I've got foot clickers which I've always used <laughs> with three so three buttons and so then you can get a um a sort of diagram and I'm, oh, this isn't going to work on a podcast so you've got three options and then when you go to down one of those options you've yes. got three more options and so I've currently got nine options after every single joke where he can do a line referring to how the audience is responding to it and do those nine options update per each joke or is it the currently same currently not options? I'm currently okay, getting my head around just trying to remember though because <laughs> it makes me think of Simon Munnery when he was doing the League Against Tedium and he had those four points on his fingertips a lot of what I do is inspired by a thing like Little Howard the original idea behind Little Howard was I was doing my first Edinburgh show in 2002 and I had half an hour of stand up and which was tight and great I was really happy with it uh, and I'd started animating on the side just on my website and people started liking the cartoons I was doing and I heard anecdotally someone say something tell me something that um simon once said he was in the comedy store watching a comedy store sort of uh mc what's your name where you're from oh you're a plumber and he leaned over to the person next to him and said one day all this will be oh one day all this will be done by machines (laughs) and the original idea behind little howard i think one of the reasons it did very well critically early on and i got nominated and things like that um was that it was not only just a cute kid doing stand-up, but it was genuinely an attempt to mechanise stand-up improvisation and to show, hold a mirror up to that. The, the thing that you, that you do when you're comparing and you haven't got, nothing comes into your head and so you yes. go to the, the, the joke. The, the that's go-to the, You go to the plumber joke. joke and, so uh, you, would, you would have a kind of a, you could almost have little Howard saying, what's your favourite so that if you met a, an accountant, he could go, what's your favourite? And you could go, number. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, you, yeah. so exactly, so you could do cut and paste, so, cut and paste lazy comparing. The, yeah, exactly, that's exactly what it was. And so at the end of the show, the first two shows I did, Little Howard was constantly trying to let me, let him do solo stand-up. And yes, I was going, oh no, okay. you can't possibly do that. And at the end, he did solo stand-up, including an any questions section, and a walking up to the audience, picking on someone, describing them, say you there with the spiky hair, with the, <laughs> with the um, what's your name? And I had uh, this, the 10 most popular babies' names in the 1970s for both sexes. And so if someone said, John, hello, John. And, people, and I would sit on stage with a keyboard operating it, okay. and people could see how it worked, see, see that I was operating it, that I wasn't 
I wasn't vent, I wasn't a vent act, yeah. but I was doing something different. And it completely, it just was, it always killed. Uh, it, it, partly because people could, because it was, it was just a, lot, a database of really good jokes that were in his character that was taking the piss about something, uh, taking the piss out of a, a thing in comedy, which is yes. a lot what fringe audiences used to be into. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not into yeah. it, so now it turns out. Um, uh, and it was clearly you could see the incredible amount of hard work yeah, that got yeah. into it because for you to do a joke about John you, we, we're watching that thinking he must have jokes about everyone yeah yeah and I yeah. don't and it, and it was and the reason that fell down and I, I, with Little Howard I've always been I've always spent I've always been trying to get Little Howard closer and closer to the experience of live comedy and so I went through because because then the, the database thing I then did a show and the first show I did for anything that anyone who wasn't a group of adults was uh, Robin Ince used to do a uh, workshops with um, a school for physically disabled people I can't remember the name of the school but so I did a show for, for people in wheelchairs and they're all just physically disabled and people in wheelchairs think entirely differently to, to able-bodied people they, the questions they ask you can't predict what they're going to ask and then I started trying to do shows for kids when I started doing kids shows because people always try to bring kids to my shows and you cannot predict what kids are going to say. And that's what's brilliant about kids. And so I then tried to develop a, a way of controlling Little Howard live with the games controller. So controlling his body languages, language and his mouth movements would be triggered by the volume of my voice. And so I could improvise at him. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. Let's do that. Uh, and, uh, but then when you do an Edinburgh show, you end up... Sc- doing it right scripting it and you're eventually just de- delivering jokes through a really cumbersome way of, yeah, of saying the same thing anyway yeah yeah, it may yeah. As well be there was no point and I, yes. I was trying to develop other characters um but uh i had a chicken which looked beautiful and it had moved amazingly it's called lionel chicken and it had lots of lovely visual gags but no one can relate to being a chicken it turns out i found out <laughs> uh, to, to a great cost uh, doing Edinburgh um, and it just ended up being a load of puns about cocks and and because there's no you, you can't you, you, I mean yeah it was and uh, so the two but so the, the, the weird things about what I do is I I started off with Little Howard and I've always been trying to branch out and there's lots of other characters that come into it but Little Howard always works because everyone can relate to Little Howard because he's a kid and everyone's been a kid. And was he, is he called Little Howard? Because originally he was you. He was you as a child. Yeah, he was, he first, I, when I was first previewing my first Edinburgh show, I drew him as a viral, uh, so I drew and animated a little viral thing to email to my mates to get him to come along to see the show, the previews. And I, I drew him and the, the drawing that I use is the same drawing I did in 2000 and late 2001 when I was trying to get people in uh, to those early previews. And I just looked at him and go, That's, there's something in that. And a kid version of me was an interesting thing. And, and the, orig- the original idea, and the idea still is, especially with the adult shows, is looking at the adult world through a kid's eyes. Because I, I think my best stuff is looking at the world from a, skewed perspective I'm dyslexic and I think that's how my brain works and that's how most of my best jokes work is because I I can usually take a different angle to most other people on a joke or a subject and Little Howard is a lovely device for doing that because you've got because he's a kid and he's a cartoon uh, 
You're looking at me very carefully. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> thinking, I'm thinking there's so many different things to ask about. Like, I'm really so interested... that's a massive info dump Yeah, yeah, no, life, no, 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 absolutely. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of, we're all up to speed on what it is you do. Um, I suppose to follow a couple of things I'm sort of trying to hang on to for later. But one of the things to follow is if he was originally a young version of you, is he no longer a young version of you? How has he grown? How has the character of Little Howard grown in the intervening 16 years? He, um, because the, the interesting thing is that I think people also buy a man in his late 20s talking to a cartoon boy more easily than they do a man in his early 40s talking to a cartoon boy. I think the relationship changes as I get older. When I, when I started, I was clearly a big brother, um, little version of me sort of thing. And now I'm very much a dad-shaped, sized age yes. person. And so that changes the relationship a little bit, a lot. Um, so he, he's, changed, he's changed a lot when my son was born. He developed lots of facial expressions that my son had when he was a baby. And... Uh, <laughs> And when my daughter was born and, uh, but I try and keep him. And when we did the T, we did a TV series for three TV series for, for CBBC, he became much more grumpy and angry. And, but I try and keep him. The core of him is innocence. He never says anything intentionally mean or knowing it. He never doesn't, never knows anything a six year old wouldn't know. So I try and keep it. And wh- why did he become more angry during the TV show? Possibly because I became more angry. I don't know. I, don't, um, I, I find the happier I am, the more angry my characters get. I don't know why. We have to spend time on that sentence. I don't know why that is. Uh, the angrier you are, the happier they become. Or the angrier No, no, I think the happier I am, the angrier they become. I don't know. I don't so know you what... were happy to have a TV show? Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. So Little Howard became angrier because or when you say angrier what like like more inclined to have problems with things was it sort of for the sake of generating material well because the thing is the tv series was about answering questions about life and so there was no ever never once you got the question you never had any problem generating material it was it was a great way of coming up with stories you tell we've got to answer this question what's the funniest way we can answer this question uh but also i just find that i and and one of the directors dermot was Always said, oh, I think Little House too angry in this script. And I think a kid being really angry at an adult is just funny. Um, okay. So I think possibly when I moved towards doing family stuff, that he got angrier just because it was funnier. That him, him losing his shit with me. What sorts of things would he get angry about? Just me not seeing the world as he sees it or me not doing what he wants us to do immediately. Uh, How old was your son at this time? Oh, very, yeah. Um, so a lot of... <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah, a lot of the... One of my favourite pictures of my son as a baby, is he must have been like, probably not in six months, and there's just one my brother took of him just going... Oh, just scrunching up his face, the angriest little tiny baby face, yeah. and two little balled-up fists. And I noticed that those eyebrows started coming into little Howard, and I just... That facial expression is... So he must have been. So Sam was Sam was born in two thousand six, and we started doing the series in two thousand eight. I so knew you were going to say that. So yeah. you've got a two year old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's terrible twos. Yeah, I, yeah. I say this purely as someone who, and this is going to knock your socks off, listener. Uh, someone who almost has a two year old. Pow! How did that happen? He's twenty months. The Beatles is twenty months old. And he's starting to be willful and get angry yeah, about yeah. stuff yeah, wait, and, wait and until... have an attitude. Oh, God, I mean, oh, yeah. don't, you know. <laughs> Sammy, Sammy's coming up to 11 and, yeah, he's, he's, he's becoming quite willful. Yes, well, we, we, we might talk way. about your uh, children because they are both stand-up comedians. Yes, they are, that's yes. incredible. Well, that's, that's yeah, it. We'll, yeah, we'll get yeah, to that yeah. later. So, so that's interesting that as your experience of being with a child 
in, uh, kind of becomes deeper and more rich and more emotionally because infused. Maybe there was some link there. Little Howard came way before I had kids and before, way before I even thought of having kids. And I so think he was your idea of a kid. He was he was almost like the twinkle in my eye. In that, in that <laughs> I became quite clucky. Um, for the first, never thinking because I was or I was a stand-up and I was, that was a career person and and yeah. and and yeah and my wife was was getting getting into her thirties and having those things where where women in their thirties tend to go I don't have a baby yeah. uh, which I hadn't seen coming at all and suddenly it came and then but when she said it I went oh so do I but partly because I'd be hanging out with my own imaginary <laughs> wow I don't think I have the psychiatry tools yeah. to get deep into this um, Crikey O'Reilly it's Howard Reed this is me just in an attempt to trip up everyone who is uh, listening along with the show and waiting for me to say so this is Howard, which I did say. So that's I was just a little uh, a little tricky rug pull for you there. Lots to enjoy here. Lots more from Howard still to come. Now donations. There are a good few of you who donate. There are. There really are. I'm I'm going to give a little free gift to everyone that's donated or in a one off way in the last year, or who is continuing to donate with a, a regular subscription payment, which uh, you can do too, and you can decide how much to do that with. Um, and uh, there's a little free gift coming your way. Uh, it's a little uh, I think you're going to get it before everyone will get it eventually but if you're a donor you get it sooner I'm quite keen to make sure that I don't sell stuff uh, apart from albums and sort of obvious stuff like that I, I, I want everyone who is on the mailing list to get all of the stuff for free but sometimes I look at the list of donors and I think God you're champions thank you so much if you if you all stop tomorrow, this would end. <laughs> I simply wouldn't be able to justify the time and the money and the constant nagging admin um, and all of those other things. I just I just couldn't do it anymore. Conversely, if even more of you decided to sign up, I could do more. I could do more with the show. Uh, I could go further. I could work harder to get bigger and better guests. I could travel more and get more weird and entertaining people. Um, and uh, and that would really that would really be fantastic. So if you are some who has already uh, donated or set up a recurring donation thank you from the bottom of my heart i reply to you all uh, those of you who donate via patreon i get round to replying to all of you in a watch every six months going thanks thanks i know i'm using patreon wrong but if you want to go to patreon.com and, uh, and and find the podcast there you can do that as well if you're a patreon user um, or if you don't like using paypal you can donate a recurring thing via Moonclerk. all of that at comedianscomedian.com slash donations no slash donate in fact isn't it but um the point is i looked down that list of donors and i thought I love you and I want to give you a thing. So to separate it from, I'm just going to give you a thing earlier that I'm going to give to the mailing list, possibly substantially earlier. So if you are one of those donors, you can expect a nice thing in your inbox. Shall I commit to the next week? No, because this week coming up is hell week and that is going to try and be admin free so that I can uh, get my shit together for the new, the, the, the very beginnings of what will become the new show. So let's say two weeks from now, you'll get a little thing and maybe Maybe everyone else on the mailing list, you will get it as well after Christmas. It's did I mention this before? It's that um, it's a clip of me uh, having a very tricky time trying to audition for an American uh, chat show to do some uh, stand up comedy on there in completely impossible circumstances uh, on which I get called out upon which I get called out by uh, a little known comedian called Daniel Kitson. And it's 
a it turns into a very funny thing it's a really um nice little clip and uh I, daniel features on it for all of a few seconds but i do have his permission to include that bit but it's important that he sets up exactly why things unfold as they do so um if you are a donor then you can look forward to that little clip in your inbox sometime in the next two weeks just as a little means of saying thank you. Remember, if you subscribe to this show, then the first thousand of you, when at one day during December, the first thousand of you that are subscribed and auto-download the show every every week uh, will also receive my new album compared to what that'll happen at some time. Uh, that's the, remember last year's tour show. Uh, you'll get that for free, but only the first thousand of you. So if you want to be one of those lucky people, then uh, you can make sure that you're subscribed, please, at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts such as Podcast Addict, CastBox, or any of the myriad other ones that work for Android. Um, so that's, that's all of that. Thank you for donating. I really appreciate it. You know that. And um, it just makes it all possible. So if you're someone who has in the past thought, well, I like this. I'm perfectly happy for everyone else to donate. If there has been a little nagging thing saying, would it, would it feel good? Would it, make me, would it make me feel positive to give something back for any... Uh, any help this podcast has given me in the in terms of my creativity uh, in terms of my uh, my working practice my mental health any of those sort of things if you have thought to yourself would it make me feel good to try donating to the show then can i say there has never been a better time to find out the startling and resonant answer to that question so all of that at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate so that's uh, you know i don't mean to hammer you come on I, I spend less time talking about that than most people do talking about some blue kitchen or of various uh, mattresses that you can get so um so that's that uh i'll chat to you with a little post amble afterwards i had quite an interesting thing happen this week so i'll talk to you about that after the show at the very end of the podcast um and uh anything else i need to say yes i'm on tour so lots of you have already bought tickets i'm really uh very positive number of you a very encouraging number of you uh, i hope people who've seen me before and are, and are returning uh, have bought tickets to see me all over the place i'm going to be in many of uh, britain and ireland's great cultural centres, including but not limited to uh, Leicester, Norden, Farming, Maidenhead, Crawley, Hull, Liverpool, Manchester, Oxford, Dublin. Uh, I'm going to, I'm then going to sneak away to an exciting thing in Texas, which I'll tell you all about soon. Uh, then Nottingham, and uh, I will also be in Reading and Caution at the Secret Welsh Festival, which you may have heard on BBC Six Music this week. Nish Kumar absolutely blew the gaff on comprehensively. Um, then Bristol, Bath, Northampton, Coventry, Shrewsbury, Swind and Farnham, Aldershot, Sheffield, York, Newcastle, Leeds, London, TBC, Southampton, Cambridge. That's got to be all of them. No, but still going. Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Bath, Brighton, uh, Tringe. That's the Tring Fringe uh, and Cardiff. And then I think at that point that is all of them. I think we conclude in Cardiff. So that's like 40 places. So you've got to be near one of them if you're in the UK or Ireland. Do come along. All of the details are available at comedianscomedian.com and press the button that says live uh, or something else. It'll say live by the time you hear this because I'm going to get round to tweaking it. It'll be clear where to find that information. God, talk about a one-man band. And on that subject, I should say, this is not a one-man band. I am so lucky to be the recipient of help, both paid for and donated um, by 
some really excellent uh, listeners and friends who are able to help me out with the mailing list and the orchestration of that. Uh, Tom DL is an absolute hero looking after various uh, behind-the-scenes things. James Hingley is my web designer, and uh, he and I have been working closely on tweaking the site and and, uh, uh, prettifying it and making it more... Uh, slick and things like that and Mr Nathan Wood who you'll remember uh, produced a good hundred of the early episodes of the show uh, he's also working with me as well on uh, mastering and prepping compared to what for release not to mention everyone at Chambers Management so you can see what happened there I started a thread of going hey I'm a one man band and then instantly felt terrible about it had to unpick all of that and point out all the, the people who helped me more than I deserve I'm sure so that is all of that um, we'll get back to the second half of this chat with Howard Reed and then I'll talk to you for a little post-amble afterwards. Now, back to how. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But, uh, but also, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of your ability to observe and record and interpret the behaviour of a child, mm. it was initially guesswork... Yeah, at the beginning of Little House, a lot of it was to dad, and then as you have your own children, you understand. It certainly started off. I think going back to the question about whether he started, he started off as a little me because I would remember things that I did, and most of my childhood was just spent misunderstanding the world and uh, just not getting anything, and it was me remembering that. So he was very much all that stuff piled into Little Howard, and then as I got little people of my own. It was, and there's just, there's one of my favourite sketches in my kid show, Little Howard's Big Show for Kids, uh, is taken word for word that, from a conversation my son had with my wife, who, and it was it was uh, I, I was in my office upstairs and the toilet's down at the bottom of the stairs, and he just went, "Mummy, I think there's a slug in the toilet. I think it's drowning because uh, it hasn't got any arms on any legs, and uh, <laughs> it wasn't a slug." Uh, and it's one of my favourite bits of material because. Because Little Howard comes on stage while I'm on stage and says, says there's a slug. He's really worried. He's about worried slug. about I've yeah, seen yeah. that bit. Yeah, um, and uh, and the audience very very sl- a couple of people get it and then more people get it and then dads start whispering to their kids. Yeah, um, and then and then the first person goes, "It's a boo! It's a boo!" Uh, which is just like, and that that was a thing that I would never have thought of, but it, but something that it was a genuine. I think misunderstandings of. Yeah, so much of my stuff is based on misunderstandings. Let's just uh, go a little deeper into what you said about your childhood being about misunderstandings and not getting it. Was that in a in a fairly happy way? Or, or, Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic. Is is one yes. of my uh, uh, 
superpowers. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I genuinely, I don't know what I just didn't, whether it's because I didn't, I read very late. And so, but I, I one of the things, it's not, uh, I went to a friend, my friend Bede's uh, sixth birthday party and he was watching Clash, I got a video of Clash of the Titans out. Um, and I went, which one's, no, no, which one's Clash and who are the Titans? Uh, and, and just, it, it was just, which isn't, but everyone found that hilarious that I'd made that mistake. Um, <laughs> and, okay, so that's like an early learn. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, but, oh, my, but also, actually, I, I, misunderstanding stuff, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, but also, I was really upset that I'd made an idiot myself. Oh, okay, yeah. But also, then I went, everyone found it very funny. I don't know if that was, that, yeah, that was a sort of a proto little Howard thing. But, um, uh, yeah, but I, 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 I really enjoy misunderstanding what people say conversationally and uh, that's where I get a lot of laughs from it and wh- where a lot of the things that I that turn into uh, turn in material come from conversations with people where I've picked a hole in language uh, Were you a happy kid generally? Um, I think so, I don't know I I, I think I think the because dis- I couldn't read until the end of primary school like, properly and uh, I think that had a real effect. But I was very clever and just couldn't get my head... I wasn't properly diagnosed with dyslexia until I was GCSE level. Did you and get so free computer? I didn't. I bloody oh, didn't. you I predated got, free computer. I got extra time in my... Uh, in my ah. <laughs> so in my A-levels, not in my GCSEs, but I got my A-levels. And so the weird thing was... Uh, so I was on my own in a... Because everyone else left in 45 minutes of just me on my own scribbling. And it's very hard to disguise, disguise a fart <laughs> when there's no one else there. Um, uh, what was but, but you were well. I was asking about whether you were a happy kid. Like, was it? Did you find oh, it isolating? Yeah, and I think I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I think that had a long-term a self-esteem thing. I think in I, an undiagnosed dyslexia. Yeah, you yeah. You know you're smart, but the everyone was telling me I'm smart, but why around. can't I read? Uh, yeah, when everyone else weird. could. And I think that's that's very defining about me, uh, and. Yeah, what I do and how I do things. Did you know any other dyslexic kids? Or did anyone well, at first I didn't know I was dyslexic. dyslexic. Yeah, of course. Um, and I don't know if I did because it, I, the local authority didn't really do dyslexia. They didn't sort of recognise it. And it was only later on when I went to an interview for a private school for sixth form, which I didn't go to, the headmaster said, oh, you th- has anyone ever told you you might be dyslexic? And it was, it was, it was suddenly having a name for my pain. And I, I'm not making up that I'm a, a press minority, but it, <laughs> but it, was, uh, it, was, it was genuinely... Oh, Wow, that's what it is. Click that—that that makes sense. Yeah. And suddenly, and then you look up who else is dyslexic and who, what other creative people are dyslexic, and you go, oh, that, oh, that's that's who I am. That's my tribe. Uh, and is that, is that is that a big thing amongst creative people amongst dyslexics? Is to, that you end up with creative people who are dyslexic? Is there a link between them, or you mean? Um, well, I think half the people, half the millionaires in the world are dyslexic and half the prison population is dyslexic so you can go either way <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and so but so obviously you focus on the on the like like the Eddie, Eddie Izzards and the uh, uh, Einsteins and the Whoopi Goldbergs of the world yeah to to see that you are different but in a good way so were you had you done regular stand up before did more, more common or garden stand up before doing Little Howard? Yeah, so I started out at university. I did a, um, so I did lots of 
drama stuff at school and at university. And I started doing a radio show at university, at the university station, and did a character called Ron Nippels. It's like God. Um, very heavily partridge uh, Influenced and uh, met my started start a comedy society at um, Kent where I was at to meet other people who wanted to be comedy creative types. Uh, and I figured if I could write comedy like I was for the radio show and perform it like I was in the Amdram stuff I was doing, I could try doing stand up because I had two skill sets. And so I started that. And so I was a comic for, so I started, so I left uni in '96 and started stand up straight from uni. So I've been doing comedy for five, six years from from first open spot to to till two thousand and two when I started doing Little Howard. But on the on the side, I started I started doing the animation as a way of making my website more fancy. Okay, and do you, and your comedy society that you started is anyone from that society? Did my, anyone go on to? Working not that I know me. of. Uh, my, my writing partner, who I co-wrote the TV series with and write my the kids' show, because one of the other things I do is I write for cartoons, mm. is, is one of my other day jobs. Um, and about half the stuff I write, I write with Chris Chandler, who is my writing partner, who doesn't do any other comedy. He writes comedy with me, and he's a heavy metal journalist, is, is, is his other um, sideline. But yeah, I'm not sure... But um, but so that that the comedy started died with me. But shortly afterwards, uh, Oliver Double started teaching stand up comedy. Yes, again. gotcha. And yes, so there's a there's about f- four years later, there's a big alumni of yes, like Pappies, 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 Jimmy McGee, I Jimmy think McGee, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Marcel. Uh, Alexis. Alexis. Yes. Oh God. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's been on the show. It's covered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah so there's um, uh, Tien and Duyeb. Uh Yeah. There's 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 lots of people went to Kent because later on they developed it. But at the time it was just me and Chris uh, and a few other people who yeah were into it. But no. we were talking about you doing um, uh, stand up before getting into the animation. Yep. And I remember you were. I had a very seminal moment. Um, where at the moment when I decided I was going to give stand up a go was at a recording of uh, the BBC at uh, TVC oh, yes. of 28 acts in 28 minutes. Oh, yes. I was in the audience because I was friends with my friend, with uh, Richard Garrity, and I was friends with my friend. That's, that's the kind of guy I am. Good uh, my stuff. friends Richard Garrity and uh, Mr. Pete Dobbing were doing, I think Rich was doing an upside down chain escape. Or maybe Pete was, can't remember. Some sort of straitjacket upside down mm-hmm. Carney stunt in this 28 acts in 28 minutes. And I remember that Stephen K. Amos was doing the warm-up for it. Yes. And it was a mammoth warm-up. And he was struggling. Like, we're hours into the show, as everyone fucks about. And the audience are turning from one thing to another. It was all over the place. And I remember Stephen saying, save me, Howard. (laughs) And you went up and took the mic off I think I... Because I think I was on that, but I was. Uh, it was Little Howard's Monkey Song, so a pre-recorded animation. Yes, exactly. Was, was, so you were. Was, so I was there. I'd done my work. I, literally, I just married. pressed play. I, I remember uh, you jumping on and doing "Shot Through the Heart" and "You're to Blame." Yes, give archery a bad name. You had loads of little songy one-liners. So I had a set that I developed doing Big Value. Well, that I sort of showcased during Big Value, which was run by Screaming Blue Murder at the time, and now is um, now is uh, Just the Tonic. Um, that was a was a really which was very much a comedy was sort of a, um, lots of comics were really big fans of that set I had two I started off with a song where I would uh, when I started out lots of people would come to a town and like, like Nesborough and say to um, 
the promoter what's the town around here that everyone hates mm-hmm. and do a thing oh they're all assholes aren't they uh, and I did a, a very highly orchestrated song where I accidentally got that the wrong way around and called everyone in Nairsborough cunts <laughs> and it was a really it's a was really, gigging in Nairsborough yeah yeah and so uh, and then slowly realised during it that oh god oh but, um, nice and it always meta. that killed that totally floated my boat I can it tell you now always absolutely killed apart from one that time in Coventry where they took it very seriously um, <laughs> but literally so I opened with that and I had a song called Mrs Grimshaw which was about Sweet Shop very very sweet innocent song about describing Sweet Shop poetically, poetically and then ending up being the filthiest thing you've ever heard and in between I had these little one liner songs and uh, and that was my sort of first set where I thought oh I fucking nailed this comedy thing and I was doing really left field stuff but for the first time made left field stuff work for a main for a club audience that was reliably bang 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 so by left tell us what you mean by left field well it's stupid well I think what I do best is is stupid we're just coming um kind of childlike do you think? I guess I guess I think that's the thing that I've always resisted the child thing the childlike thing uh like people always try to the, the reason I started doing kids shows is people always try to bring their kids and I was going no I don't bring kids to my shows I'm a grown up I'm, <laughs> I'm edgy I'm going I'm edgy I'm going to swear and like I I do but I literally swear three times in a show and it's usually the C bomb uh but uh and then I look at it and go, actually, I could just take those out and, and then I could double my audience, uh, which is with the logic I eventually came up with. Um, but the more I look at the, the bits that are where I'm naturally most funny is when I do something stupendously idiotic, like calling everyone in the room cunts when you're supposed to call the next town along the cunts. Uh, yeah. Talk to me about the meta stuff. And you're, because that's come up a couple of times that, you know, the, like taking the existing framework of comedy or when we were talking about the fact that, you know, you, the stuff you're working on now, Little Howard can do the kind of, uh, let's not say hack, but let's say trope based uh, MCing. Mm. So then like you're playing with the substance of comedy itself and a familiarity with comedy. Is is that just a case of, like, what draws you to that? Is that just a case of I think kind of being a bit of a clever clogs about comedy? Yeah, is it, yeah. I think one of the, there's, there's several things in that. Um, one of the things was when I started, I hadn't done anything else. I've never done anything else. I've, this is what, all I've ever done. And so all I know is comedy. And uh, so early on, it was all I had to talk about <laughs> was like, look, I'm a comedian. That, that, and, that, that is increasingly the case. You, you know the way that um, less mature kind of uh, open mic acts these days yeah. will go, call back, you know, in a way that actually mm. makes everyone grind their teeth. Yeah. I wonder if that comes from a similar place of going, you don't we have much lived. else. Yeah, no, when you're yeah. in your 20s and you're doing stand-up and you jump straight from university or come straight from school and like, you, you've not done anything else. Like, there's nothing else to, like, it's only in the last sort of 10 years that I've started actually talking about life because I've lived a life and I've like got scuff, um, scuff marks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kids and, and, and also I've got, I've got something in common with humanity now in that I've got an offspring and I take them to school and stuff like that. Whereas the rest of the time I live in my own little bubble and in my little car, driving to my little gigs and like, I've got, I've got, it can be quite lonely in, in, uh, when you're not with other comics in that you've got nothing in common with normal people uh, because everything 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 I want to talk to you about is uh, they think their job's really boring and they think my job's fascinating but they can't talk about my job in the way that we can talk about our jobs yes uh, and so 
And I'm a massively so- antisocial person anyway. Not massively antisocial. I'm just not good with um, people I don't know and people I'm not relaxed with. Is that uh, right? Yeah. That surprises me. Uh, I suppose because I know you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you, 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 see, but you, you see me in... Yeah, you see me in... Uh, the company of comics and so I'm fine in the company, yes. company of comics but um, just, to, just to stay on that for a second something that drives my wife a bit nuts is the fact that I will and apologies to anyone listening to this who isn't a comedian but I will I do seem to start from the basic idea that we are special and we're the ones I want to talk to and this is very infrequently borne out because often we're awful. We, <laughs> as, we as in comedians. We all. as in comedians. Initially, it was we as in street performers. Yeah, yeah. So years ago, when I first, I felt very alienated by the world, and I got into street performing. I was like, "There's a community here, and we all get it. We all know the secret." Yeah. yeah. And what is the secret, Stu? Well, it's just that you know, it's, we get it. Right? Yeah, you got yeah. it. If you don't got to explain it, we're the cool people. You don't get it. Yeah. yeah we're, we're either the maybe musicians think it about other musicians. I don't know if they do, but it's like it's a subculture. I'm sure other subcultures think that about like there's kind of the squares you know straights or suits or whatever and then there's us and I felt very much like um, I got my community now and we are you know we walk between the raindrops we're the special guys and I've kind of then transposed that onto comedy to Mm. a certain extent so then when meeting normal people it's hard to break through that kind of set of in many cases clearly wrong preconceptions I know lots of people who aren't comics or street yeah, yeah, okay. who are fascinating oh, no, and brilliant completely. people yeah. and I know loads of us who are complete arseholes so yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean so, but, uh, but, I think, but I think the thing about comics is that they are arseholes but they're arseholes you can relate to yeah. <laughs> but like, but we're all arseholes we're all we're all um, we're all we're all screwed up and, and, and we all do this because there's a hole in us somewhere um, and uh and you, but I, I very, very rarely meet a comic that I can't get on with, even if they're the biggest dick in the world, uh, or Fanny. Uh, <laughs> uh, but because we've all gone through the same thing, and we all, we all, yeah, we're all trying to do, we're all going for the same goal. I think. So you said that's a, that's a really good point. Assholes you can relate to. I think that's all it boils down to. You said the the question, my question about. Um, uh, being a clever clogs, you said it through yeah, several things. You said, let's get yeah, to that, some um, uh, that is, uh, I, I listened to uh, the Gary Delaney one you did with him where when he started out, people said, oh, it's very clever. And and they said, it, he realised that when someone comes after a gig and saying, oh, that was very clever. And initially he thought that was a compliment. I get that all the time. It drives me mad. When people go, oh, I really like that. It was very clever. And it's like, it's not supposed to be clever. And, and one of the things I get is until something goes wrong in a little house set some people won't get on board with it at all because they just think what are you just smug what are you doing what are you doing why, why don't you just tell some jokes and it's only when so I, I when I do a little Howard show shows I leave all my I leave the, my, my virus thing on and there's a few things that pop up on my computer just randomly because my computer wants to download something and I'm not on Wi-Fi and I started off disabling those and now I don't because Every it so benefits often, the act. Yeah, because every so often something will go, the, the, the screen that Howard's on will, will minimise or something will go wrong and people will see it's a computer and there's a picture of my kids behind it and it pops the pompous bubble that people perceive me to be in. And, uh, and I'm also very good at 
carrying on when things go wrong because when I started off everything would always go wrong all the time and I got to a place where I realized that as long as I didn't care the audience were fine with it and actually it very often helped I did shows where they'll just sit there hating me for the first 20 minutes of the show and then I massively cock something up and suddenly everyone loved me and I don't know I have never worked out what that is but I think it just people go oh you're, you're like us you're not. Because you're just trying to do a thing, and the computer's in your way. Because prior to that point, they think you're what showing off that you're showing off or smug or clever, clever or something. I don't know, but there's. I'm really interested in that. What is it about that relationship that you're sh- that you're showing off, or that you're smug, or that you're because it is? I guess you've got a projector, you've got a screen, you've got technology. It is. It, I suppose it could come across as a bit ta da, a bit like a juggler. Yeah, look, yeah. At, look at my great. Yeah, and also possibly um, like a crutch or like a. Um, I'm not a proper stand. Yeah, and that, I think I got that in my head anyway. That I, th- I have a little voice that goes, "Why don't you just do?" Because I can. I'm. I'm. A you good, are a really good stand. Yeah, we and, haven't made that but, entirely no, yeah, that, clear. But I. But I, my main the, the reason I do little Howard is firstly that I, I've always realised I'm a straight white man in a comedy industry full of straight white men I come from a very dull background I've got to do something different I've got to I've got to stand out in a different way because me talking about my life is like I've been a middle class boy and then I've been a middle class stand up it's like that's I've always I've my best strength is my imagination and uh, the way the ways I can look at the world and if I can then deliver that material in a different way in a way that no one else can do um and I also happened to, I started animating and I happened to be naturally a really good animator. I don't know why, but I'm self-taught, but I'm a really good animator and I can particularly character stuff. I'm very good at animating characters. I'm not very good at drawing, but I'm good at making them express. Um, and that was just felt like a thing. I can do this. I can do that. I should do both of those. Like play to all your strengths. If you can play the guitar, play the guitar. Um, yeah. And so... The, the thing is that I'm currently trying to work on doing Little Howard in clubs because it's it just like I tried out a thing yesterday in a club where the room was too wide and the lights weren't right and so they couldn't quite see Little Howard because it, the screen was bleaching out and the people on the sides couldn't see it so they had to stand up and move and already you're up against it whereas I did a show the night, the night before and the, the screen was lit properly and it was a long room and it stormed it but it's a very fragile thing. You've got to rely on that. So it's a massive pain in the ass to do a little howling in clubs. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't try and do it because you're very bookable, aren't you? Ultimately, yeah. When it works, but do uh, when, when do I do because because I'm used to doing it works best in my own show where usually I do something as the audience are coming in. I have a thing which I've always done where I draw on the screen with a whack on pad and basically MC the room as they're coming in and draw them and make jokes about them but in writing silently in writing um, to get them into my world to get them into because the ultimate thing with Little Howard is you have to suspend your disbelief you have to go okay there's two people on stage one of them is two dimensional and you've got yes. to buy that and when you've just seen someone effortlessly talking to a mic telling jokes and then another guy comes on with half of fucking Dixons and but, but puts it on the stage <laughs> it's like why don't you just do what the other guy did and yes. Uh, so it's always it's this thing I've never really done in clubs which makes doing Edinburgh shows really hard work because you can only really do them in previews you can't and I've developed a way of what I do now is I tend to write jokes in stand-up 
and then go, which one of these will work in that? So quite often doing an Edinburgh show is a two-year process because I'll do a work in progress as a stand-up and then I'll cherry-pick the best bits of that and start growing the little Howard stuff out of that. And then that will turn into a thing where the jokes will lead to other jokes and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, ideally, I want to be able to, I'd love to be able to do a 20-minute set that rip the arse out of it with little Howard. But until it's not, it's always been sketches yes. and sketches never work in stand-up clubs. Oh. Yes. So you want to do, so hence the double act where one of you happens to be animated yeah. and you have enough of a stripped down works anywhere set up that you could walk on and go, Zoom, that's yeah. up, that's there. Let's go. Yeah. Which I've got now. It's interesting. It reminds me of, uh, do you remember Alex Horn's stand-up set where he'd do the, uh, the pre-recorded beatbox? Yeah. Yeah. Closer. Yeah. I always remember being that used to blow me away when I was like, you know, two or three years into stand up and I'd be doing the open spot at some student gig that he was closing. Yeah. And he did the kind of. Uh, yeah, I was brilliant. Yeah. The, just for the sake of explaining it, he did, he would pretend that he was, he was sort of offering to do a beatbox and then he would seamlessly it, switch to a recording at the same volume. And I've never worked out voice. at what point it switches. It's, it's yeah. fantastic. So he'd end up doing incredible beatbox sounds and you'd go Jesus he can really do it and then there'd be a pause in the recording while he said the name of someone he'd established earlier on so I mean you strike me as being of that kind of school yeah. of I'm a, I'm a regular bloke I'm funny but I've got to put something else underneath it yeah and but also it's, it's, it's not just that it's also that's what really interests me doing things a different way really interests me and uh I think my stand-up, I do try and do things in a different way that it's always been. I very few jokes that are just jokes that I, it's always trying to attack something in a, in another way that hasn't Can been. Can you attacked. give us an example? Um, uh, no. Can <laughs> 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 um, um, uh yeah, obviously, I, I've got lots. Like my my set, especially when I started doing kids stuff, my stand up set got mm, uh, filthier and filthier. But I always try and make me the butt of the joke in in all that stuff. And and like with the with the songs, I I, I would always I, I don't I don't know what I mean by that. But um, yeah, I for a long time I didn't. That was one of the comments where you couldn't. No one ever. I was never worried about nicking my jokes because my stuff was all came from me rather than, and most of it wouldn't work out of context. Someone else couldn't. Yeah, certainly when I started, someone else saying my joke, they wouldn't get a laugh. Yes, but me saying it would, and it's very much the same with Little Howard. Annoyingly, if I give a little joke to Little Howard, quite often it gets a way bigger laugh than if I just said, "Oh man," which is. <laughs> Because why do you think that is? Because I think people can relate to. Interestingly, when I when I when I was doing previews um, of early Edinburgh shows, uh, and you know when you do a preview and there's literally two people there and it's horrific and they just everyone's just sitting and go, oh god, please don't be shit because this is going to be the hardest. No. Um, and I'd walk off stage and leave little Howard. Suddenly everyone would relax because the human element and that person you feel sorry for is removed. Yes, and. Uh, and it's just a thing that's... It's a thing that isn't human, that, that's delivering... You can just watch it. You don't, relax. Have, you don't worry about him dying. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. 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 And, yeah. Uh, okay. and also because I walk on stage and people... When you walk on stage, every reason comics have a line to say, I look like the bastard son of yada, 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 is because it's to pop that 
preconception about you look people assume things about you when you walk on stage and no one assumes anything about a cartoon boy they just take it as red they and the other advantage of little howard is you can get away with stuff that you couldn't get away with as a stand-up because you've clearly thought it through in the you must have pre-recorded it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. In that the, you've gone to the effort to, to deliver your material like this. So Little Howard says some quite controversial things in my shows. And I, I very... I've, I literally have, I've had one time where, where, where people have taken it the wrong way and got really upset. Go on. Uh, uh, I had a, uh, a character um, called uh, Rashida de Corsi, who was um, uh, the first uh, female Muslim uh, ventriloquist actor. It was a long time ago, <laughs> um, and she says so, so we're in with a full veil. And so the joke was, it's a it's a it's a lady in a burqa whose mouth you can't see doing a uh, with a, with a, the puppet was in a in a burqa, and that was the joke. But she would do jokes about, and it was a time of the Iraq War, uh, and but she would do jokes that were about sort of pub jokes that are about Muslims, and the punchline would be really depressing in the shape of a joke but the punchline would be something horrific that was happening to Muslim people in the world and the point of that was there's lots of people doing Muslim jokes at the time at the time when thousands and millions of Muslim people were, sure. we were killing them and in a very funny way because it always stormed it except this one time at the Soho Theatre when half the audience walked out um, the point was that these jokes aren't funny this is horrible these we're, we're punching down we're being horrible to people who we're also killing they're not funny stop it was the the point that pompous Howard uh, wanted to make, um, but there was also a very funny joke about the physical appearance of a Muslim woman in a burqa being a ventriloquist of a yeah. That, the, there was that the, joke. The kind of the the non politicised components of mm. that are in, inherently funny. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I had one show at the Soho Theatre where. Uh, this woman walked out and lots of her friends walked out and it, she wasn't a Muslim who'd walked out she had a friend who was a Muslim and she was at one of those things where she was offended on their behalf the Muslim girl didn't walk out uh, but it was a perceived that they saw what I was doing took offence to it and left before they got to the punchline which made it clear that I'm on their side that I'm making a point against comedians that was the yeah and so but ordinarily if you've gone to the trouble of animating an entire character who's a... Yeah. Then people go... They give you a bit more rope before they hang you. If you see what I mean. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Your, um, your show Man and Boy at mm-hmm. Edinburgh this year, which I enjoyed very much. Thank you. Um, apart from the Haberdashery song, which I loved, but Sorry. it's ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, I would go... I would say it is as... Earwormy as Rob Deering's coffee song. That's how bad it is. Yeah, it is <laughs> so intentionally so. We should but. release a comedy album of earworm songs. Yeah, yeah. Earworms. And, and we'll, that, that absolutely, I mean, I can't contribute to it, but I and have then, idea. But then also <laughs> have. And then do some sort of survey, but which one sticks in the head? Which is worse. And you yeah. can, the only way out is through. You have to keep For, playing for a long time, I, I didn't put. I didn't put any recorded versions of Haberdashery. No, that was a long time. I've been doing it for about a year. But um, uh, I didn't put any... I didn't refuse to put it on YouTube because the only way you can... Cause that song came from... That's what I mean by the best things I do are silly. In the, So this, this Haberdashery, if you haven't heard it, is basically a song that's a series of random words, all of which are my favourite words, sung in a way, but you can't... Every verse is different, and I make the audience do actions... 
and it's impossible to do the actions because the actions change every so there's a different hand movement give us a burst of haberdashery it goes uh, haberdashery haberdashery elk haberdashery 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 elk haberdashery gnu 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 elk uh, and in, but whilst you're doing it, Little Hound sings it with me, yes. and we flash up images of, yes. of the things. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's just, it's fucking ridiculous. It's brilliant. Um, but that's one of the things that, that's what's really annoying about That is by far and away the best thing I've written in the last, like just reliably, it makes kids piss themselves, it makes adult, adults piss themselves. But it doesn't make any sense. There's no, I don't know why it's funny, <laughs> but it is really funny. And, but when I started, because I was literally sitting in my, I was at my, me, my in-laws house and my family were there and I was just sitting in their lounge and started singing this little song and my son Samson came in and said what was that singing because it's really interesting when, when I start coming up with something because I try stuff out with them and some of the lots of stuff I do is comes from me playing with them and being silly with them trying to make them laugh and there's a t- few times when that where that where, where it's usually Samson just goes what are you doing because he can tell that something's some cogs are wearing yeah. and, and so I said I'd come up with this song and so I had a few words and I just had the sort of song structure of it and I got them to write down their favourite words as well oh, great. and when Mabel write, wrote down Halfords I went right this is going to be uh, and I won't give away how Halfords is involved in it. but the fact that her favourite word is Halfords <laughs> it's just so brilliant uh, but the really annoying thing is that that's like in Man and Boy so much I slaved and sweated over lots of the jokes in that but far away the funniest thing in it is the bit that just fell out of my head and, and, went, you, you, that, and just is just fucking hilarious to anyone who sees it does that make you think next year's show or the show in two years time could be maybe maybe there could be less slaving and sweating and more letting that stuff fall out yeah um, the, the best stuff I come up with is I'm going to describe it as when the, you just let the gears slip in your head and you it's getting into your subconscious or something in that it just floods out and it's and I just when I'm just playing in my head and something comes out but that's the really tough thing is you can't make that happen it's really hard to make that happen uh, um, yeah so most of my best bits are inspiration rather than perspiration uh, in that it'll be a thing that comes to me and go I'll do that yeah it's brilliant Right, <laughs> but then you can't do like for example the town song where I'd sing a song. You can't then go, oh, "What's the next town song?" Because that that's funny because it's got a big joke in it. You've got to think of the next big joke that will sustain a big thing. If you see what I mean, and the, the haberdashery song is funny because it's I don't know why it's, I don't know why it's funny. It's just big nonsense bollocks. Uh, but commit with 100% commitment there's a sound and light show with it there's actions with it I, st- I, I almost always stop 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 the performance and have a go at the audience for not joining in and for, like so my on stage character is a bit cross that they don't know, already know the haberdashery song and uh, and the fact that it's also an earworm and I wrote it intentionally to be an earworm because I'd written a TV thing for a preschool show uh, was about earworms so we did a bit of research about how they work and it's mainly about your brain's trying to learn the song. And so if you write a song that's unlearnable, literally my kids learnt it in about two days. It <laughs> took about two months for me to learn it because it's, it's entirely, the words come in a, a, 
apparently predictable way, but then but not then they constantly switch switching, and, and yeah. so and so that's part of the fun is that, that it's you can't do the actions along with it. Uh, and I get really angry at the people. That, what are you doing? You're fucking up! What are you doing? Uh, my character does, and, and yeah, which is just great fun. You, you're. Sorry, Cedric. Yeah, I know. You, you're just getting your. What, what I really love is, is luring an audience in to play your silly game and then being furious at them because they don't do it properly. And, like, I, that's just fun. <laughs> Not actually furious, obviously. But. We talked a couple of times at Edinburgh and since Edinburgh, and something that's come up often is, and has come up today, is the, um, the volume of work you need to do to make it mm. work. Yeah. A, do you feel like that is a cage of your own making? Like, do you feel kind of trapped by that? Yes and no. Um, uh, yes, but I think you, when it works, it works in a really amazing way that I can do stuff that no one else can do when it works. But So I've, I've been looking over films of the... So I sent you a film of the show, because um, we clashed in the universe, so we, we can see each other's shows. Um, uh, and now what we're looking at, I go, oh, I could make that better, I could tweak that. And one of the things I've realised realized about myself is I probably, like, I'm, I basically get up, take my kids to school, and I work all day, and I pick my kids up, and I carry on working, and quite often at the moment I'm working long into the night on writing projects and coming up with, and, but at the moment we're working on this new iteration of how I'm going to do Little Howard. Uh, but I'm also incredibly lazy in that I... Because it's so labour intensive, I have to work that hard for it to be done. So when it gets to a point where it's okay, I go, oh, thank fuck. And I, 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 I go, oh, surely that'll do, won't it? Um, and then I look back at the stuff when, I, when, when I've got distance from it after Edinburgh looking at it and go, oh, I could have done that better, I could have done better. And you start seeing the holes in the show and you start working out what you could do better and what, how to move it on. And this was going to be... B, <laughs> to, yeah, okay, my, yeah, to yeah. my two questions, um, which was terrible interview technique. You should never go, A, this. But the, I was going to ask about the, the ramifications of having to work so hard. And that is interesting to hear that you, because it's so labour intensive, an element of it has to be, that is interesting. You could be lazy, like you know, in, in your words that you're kind of lazy. I'm sure you're not lazy. But the idea that you put so much work into making a thing work that maybe your quality control could be better yeah, yeah, because yeah, you haven't really. exhausted yourself. Yeah, and you yeah because no, you, you do, you can... Yeah, you, by the time you've got, got to Edinburgh, or even by the time you've done all your previews, you're absolutely knackered, and you just want to have fun in Edinburgh, and you want to just, like, just go and do it every day and play. And when you do the first show, and it doesn't work the way you want it to work, it's like, oh, God. And it's really hard to then go... Okay, we've got to carry on working. It's got to go. Oh, it is what it is. But also, I think what I think the other thing I learned in Edinburgh was that it, it, you do have to attend and go. It is what it is, and I have to now make this show work as it is, which is what I spent Edinburgh doing. In that, I, I also found I found in the last ten years, Edinburgh audiences have become much more. There's so much more for them to see. They're knackered, but by the time they get into your show, and, <laughs> and how do you find the audiences in Edinburgh? Knackered. Well, yeah. <laughs> be, be, before we get onto that, I, I do want to talk yeah. about that. But I just just to wrap up this other thing. Yeah, and sorry. it might be a slightly uh, challenging question, but I, I suppose what I want to ask is: Do you ever think there is an extent to which you are sort of hiding in overwork? Possibly, yeah. I don't think I'm. Intentionally, because I, uh, 
What do you, what do you mean exactly? Well, what did you think I meant? Because you started going for it. I, I'm not 100% sure I want to be. I suppose we, the, the difference between working hard and working smart, but no, it's not quite that. The, it's the, about that duality of like, if you're creating lots of work for yourself to do, yeah. then does that, it, in some ways it benefits you. And I'm wondering about in other ways, maybe it lets you off the hook to work harder on the... Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Judge, in that it, 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 I, I think in my head, it. I think it doesn't because I still have to perform the show, and if they don't like it, I, I'm still there yes. with them not liking it. Um, and what's interesting though is that with Little Howard, I, it, despite the fact that all the punchlines are delivered in exactly the way I want them to be delivered, um, and sometimes that's wrong, and so you go, "Oh, that's wrong," because I've delivered that. His body language is wrong. He's, the way his intonation is wrong. Um, but most of it is you learn how to be a straight man in that if Little Howard says something offensive to me, if I don't react appalled enough, it doesn't get a laugh. And so you, I quite often spend Edinburgh learning how to, how to react, how to put what face to pull to the punchline, which I know is a fucking great joke, um, which has ripped it in previews. And then, but you go to an audience who are just not as on board as comedy preview audiences are in comedy clubs because because the previews you're doing are usually in clubs where that's the only comedy they'll see that month uh, and you've come with your big stupid show it's different to all the other stand-ups they've seen they go oh brilliant this looks great and so they're on board straight away whereas in Edinburgh you've got the entire arts world on people's doorsteps and they can pick and choose and quite often they've seen a couple of shows before we've just come from Belgian clowning and we're going on to an interactive adventure and so (laughs) you have to work harder and and initially you go oh why why do I have to work hard you go well, of course you've got to work hard you're competing with the best people in the world and so your audience are harder um, and so an argument for going for, for firstly there's a lot there's so many different things and it's really hard because I because um, I find if I do if I spend a day doing my accounts I'm shit on stage the next the, the, that night uh, if I spend a day animating I'm shit on stage that night and so if I spend all of the first weeks of Edinburgh tinkering with the animation it puts my brain in the wrong headspace and uh so i won't perform it well and i've f- f- taken me a very long time to learn i think part of me is when oh he can do all the work i can just press the button and he'll do all the work but actually i still have to perform it i'm the one who sells the show um to the audience um and yeah and so i've realized that rather than spending my days tearing my hair out in my room before the show tweaking animations and, and, and doing things like that is I just need to work out what I'm doing wrong me on stage why they're not laughing at his joke which I know is a really good joke because um, he's delivering it exactly the same and it's how I perform the reaction to the joke yes the punchline is, that is not working and so the, yeah the, the thought process was that I so I would do that but then if they still wouldn't laugh if I th- thought I'd nailed it and they still didn't laugh I then started doing crowd stuff but that would involve me breaking out of the um, reality of the double act Let, let's talk a little bit about the reality of the double act one of the things I mean and we'll get and then we'll get on to Edinburgh and then we, I've got another tiny little angle and then we must wrap up but what what is it like performing with someone who you know what they're going to say, but you can't stop them saying it because like that yeah. aspect of, of wanting to improvise, like, you know, is it, is it, I mean, he's, is he in danger of effectively being a dolly? Like, how do you make sure that the, 
that the ball is in the air between you when one of you is pre-recorded? Um, you just have to perform it really well. That's that's the thing. You just have to perform it really well to not lose the audience. And that's the that's the. But that's not always possible. You can't always. You're not in charge of how the audience's day has been and what if it's raining outside if they're feeling hot and sweaty and oh, it's really hard to. Uh, so, but that's the thing I, I've realised I need to do to make it work more in a more bulletproof way is I need to he needs to be able to improvise that's that's the reality of it and that's but that's how I start that's how I start in Alpha Little Howard I start the idea the original idea of Little Howard wasn't me and him performing patter double act things it was him improvising and I since doing the kids stuff there's no point in him improvising because kids that's what kids do kids are improvising that's what they do all the time and the best thing about doing kids stuff is that the stuff the kids shout at you is very often funnier than anything you could ever think of. Um, and well, why did I start saying that? Um, uh, oh God, brain gone. What were we talking about? What? Um, um, I was talking about how do you improvise with someone who's pre-recorded? How do you keep the ball in the air? Yeah, how and you- and very often you can't you can't improvise. You, I have to I have to go off stage. Do I'm not go off stage, but I have to step out of it. You find the moments in the sketch where you can refer to something that's happened in the room. Um, you can have a twinkle in your eye. You can have a moment where you address how the show's going or when someone did a weird laugh or something like that. And you can bust the gig that way, but it's not ideal in that you're taking the focus off the main thing, which is that relationship between those two characters. Um, So yeah, it's, it's really, what's, what's really exciting about it, though, is that I've come back to it. Because like, for, for kids, it just works instantly. Kids just go, oh, bloke in a cartoon, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, they're completely on board with it straight from the get-go. You never have to do any of that work. And, uh, and so one of the things in this show is there's a fart psychic routine that I do with kids, which just destroys rooms with kids. Um, uh, but adults go, what are you doing, you child? And so, I, so there's a sketch which I, I think works really well because you still get it where people just go, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Like you see, and I've timed it. It's an eight, eight minute long routine about farts. And so I worked out that because um, I still because farts are funny, like farts are very funny, especially someone going around pulling people's fingers, making them make farts out of X, and then improvising a um, a prediction about their future. And I just one of the things I wanted to do in the show was make a room full of adults piss themselves laughing at eight minutes of farts. Um, and the way I did it was get little Howard to insist that we were going to do this thing and for me to be as appalled as the audience are. What are you talking about? Yes, That's a terrible okay. idea. Okay. Um, and uh, yes, and that's why I forgot why I started saying this. I think the drive... Well, you're just talking about the relationship, the, the, the on-stage dynamic between you and a pre-programmed partner. Yeah. So ultimately it comes down to wanting him to be able to improvise yeah and that's but that, that that's the thing that edinburgh coming back to adult little howard stuff which is the i've done for the first time is that i've got an incredibly long way to go before it works <laughs> before it's the show i want it to be which is really i think but now i've realized that that's really exciting and that's really fun because i think i've worked out how i can do it and, and you've got a clear goal as well. Like you're you're not just writing more jokes. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. you're tinkering towards a project. You've got that kind yeah. of mad and the, but that's quality. what because it will be it'll be completely unique when you come. Yeah, on. yeah, and because but also I I got distracted halfway through that journey because like we, we started it and it, the, my first year in Edinburgh was two thousand two. 
amazing reviews. Everyone loved it. Everyone thought it was going to get nominated. Didn't for the newcomer. Second year, it was harder work, but still nice reviews. And then it got nominated. Then you had your difficult second album year where you tried to do something and it doesn't work at all. And then 2005, I did a show which I was, it's called Little How to Peel, which I was, where I completely fucking nailed it. And it was, like, it was great. It was, did everything I wanted to do in the show. It had a story arc. It had, the whole show was one big joke at the end of the show, which went click and flipped over. And there was a joke that just made sense of everything else. And, and it was brilliant. But then I got, uh, that then eventually led to the Raw Variety, which was a big sort of, this is us, we're big showbiz, we're, we're going to be mainstream. And then I got the TV, the kids TV thing, which because I wrote, animated and performed in, just took me out of the real world for th- three, four years. And so that journey of working out how to make that act work just stopped. And then I started doing the, ki- the, the, then the kids stuff, the theatre stuff started taking off. And that's where it looked like it, the future of it was. And it, yeah, it has been. And that's what's been paying my mortgage for. I didn't realise you'd done the Royal Variety. Yeah, yeah. How many people watch that? It's huge. It's a really huge show. But it's also huge amongst people who... because com- who don't watch comics. Comics don't watch it. Yeah, it's yeah. the big crossover show. Yeah, 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 I remember yeah. I think of it in terms of like, that was Mickey mm. Flanagan's kind of... You bounce from being, oh, all the people who like comedy watch this, yeah. but all the people watch the Royal Variety show. But I literally went straight from that almost immediately. I went, did that, did Melbourne, um, and straight off the back of Melbourne in 2008 went straight into production with with the TV show. And did you then, did you perhaps, by by choosing that, did you lose momentum from the Royal Variety thing? Is that yeah, what, is and, that but I also, what you mean? But that, I, also that, that stopped, kind of... I also stopped doing adult shows, really, with Little Howard and stopped pursuing that as a thing, which is the original point of it. Talk to me about that decision to go and do the TV show then, having just had what was conceivably like one of the biggest possible breaks you could get. They happened exactly the same time. It was in the two thousand ten years ago. It was in the I got the call about the Royal Variety um, a month before I was getting married, and so and because I wasn't remotely famous, they wanted the script locked down entirely um, before they'd agreed to do it. And so I spent the two weeks before my wedding writing a script for Little Howard about the Queen. Uh, I then wrote my groom speech pacing up and down in the corridor outside <laughs> and it was because yeah, all you have to do is cry when the groom speaks easy um, and then I went on honeymoon and managed to completely forget because basically we as I went on honeymoon we said yeah we're going, we, we've got green litter and so I went on honeymoon managed to completely not think about it at all for the entire honeymoon got back and had 10 days to animate and rehearse the 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 thing which is an entirely new animated set for the show um, and uh yeah, that sort of. So it was, and but at the same time, conversations were going on about Little Howard, the TV series for CBBC, um, and I just had no idea how all-encompassing doing the TV show was. And so you th- it wasn't down to a choice. You thought no, no, it was, both. it was, yeah, and but also because I that that choice happened, and then the first series was really successful, and so I got two series off the back of it, and so I was just literally, and I. I Loved doing the TV. I had, and I'm so proud of that TV show. Uh, it was exactly what I wanted it to be, and it was brilliant fun. And it's it led to ten years of touring Mill Howard, so I don't regret it at all. And what's lovely is it now I've got to a point where I that's sort of that's done, and uh, there's not done, but that, that's that's sorted. That's doing, and I've got a new 
family show that I'm touring, which is which I when I get the headline title is Big Hounds. Uh, so I, I, which is a mixture of stand up and my animation stuff, but more stand up led for kids. Um, and uh, but now I sort of got to the point where I've done a lot of writing for other people for for cartoons and stuff, and I've just got I'm a much better d- joke writer than I was then. And very often I got the breaks I got. Like when I got, we got nominated for the Perrier in 2003 and that was sort of a big, ah, oh, this guy's the next big, but I really wasn't ready for it. I was still tinkering with the idea and the, some people, a couple of people on the panel loved it and then plonked me on this pedestal and we, we did lots of things, but because you can't turn around material quickly with this yeah. act, you, I wasn't ready for a lot of the challenges that were thrown at me. And similarly with the, with the, to, to do because I animated, uh, we did th- 36 episodes of Little Howard, and I was the lead animator on it, which involved me physically animating about 60% of the animation. Um, so I just, I barely slept for about four years. But it was brilliant. It was, it was every frame of that show was as close as I wanted it to be to what I wanted it to be, which was fantastic. And as a creative person, that's just the best thing. Um, but it took took my eye off a different ball. But it's not that ball isn't. But that ball is there for me to play with now, which and, is what. And I thought what you were going to say something that we talked about at Edinburgh is that you now have people who were eight years old yeah, yeah. when you were doing the TV series that are now eighteen years old and can come and enjoy you with a sort of yeah, added layer of irony. But if they're not, if they're not. Because uh, so I intentionally got was in an over 18s venue um, in Edinburgh <laughs> yeah. in order to make sure I, people, kids didn't wander in the kids because some of it was filthy, really yes. like and visually really filthy. Yes. There's one particular image which is horrific, <laughs> and the point of it is it's horri- like a chicken does a thing with his head that is just ah oh, gee like proper horrible. And but I so I made sure that kids couldn't wander into that because as soon as the kids watching that, then everyone else watches it through their eyes yes, and ears, and they don't enjoy the very childish thing that you're doing. And that's that's the way. Yeah, it is childish, um, but it's also adult. Um, and so I had the really heartbreaking thing was I had some people who were seventeen and a half got that got got there and got ID'd by the bar who were really really tight on it um, because it's their license and everything. And that's why I wanted to be there was because I wanted them to be tight on it. Yes. But there were people who were old enough to enjoy the jokes who just weren't allowed in because their birthday was in the wrong. But yeah, but that was but that what's what what's really lovely is when people who love the TV show. Yeah, some of them are now 18 and now can get on board with my stupid adult stuff as well, which is a lovely thing that you can, you can take that audience and grow with them. So to wrap up then, you were talking about Edinburgh before and about how you feel Edinburgh has changed since you yeah. last went up It's possible there. I've changed and I'm just not cool I'm anymore. Not. But, but <laughs> <laughs> not cool anymore? What do you mean? But not like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Sorry, what was, it? what was the question? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not quite sure what the question is, but I'm interested in your experiences of that. Like, I've been going I, in every year and I've seen it change, but I don't, I haven't seen it change with the immediacy of having not gone for a bit or having not done yeah, well, odd stuff for a bit, you know. Um, suddenly like, oh, Jesus, this is... You know, well, when you do something that's, that's as immovable... And that I think of Little Howard as how Little Howard shows as like a trying to turn a tank like an oil tank around. In that you go something's wrong with this. I need to change it. This will take several days. <laughs> to, whereas in stand up, when you because I've done stand up shows and not noticed the difference because as a stand up you naturally adapt to what your audience is doing and you can improvise around it and you, your show changes everything about the show can change organically throughout the run of the festival. Uh, but a show where your main punchlines are 
set in not necessarily stone but balsa wood uh, uh, you realise how receptive people are to stupid ideas and I've always gone to Edinburgh with just stupid ideas and sometimes they worked and I was very lucky in the first stupid idea I went to Edinburgh with people went this is fucking brilliant we love this stupid idea and a lot of it will be diminishing marginal returns of going back with a, an iteration of the same stupid idea but uh, I've gone back with entirely different stupid ideas involving animation the, the puppetry animation thing that I did just didn't work I mean this, also the show wasn't ready and the show wasn't great but I just felt like you didn't have any leeway you, you walked on and people were sitting there with their arms folded and you didn't have any leeway to fuck up yeah. And that's what's brilliant about the free fringe is that uh, I, did, I did. So I, I, I did a show in 2013, uh, which was this puppetry show, which just didn't. There was, there was a core to it was brilliant. But what I should have done is I should have taken that trick and put it at the end of a little Howard show where everything's been done on rails. And then suddenly he turns around and he can talk yes, and he's, he can improvise. Yes. What I tried to do was do an entire hour show, which was mainly me improvising and mucking about with cartoons and it just didn't work and it the, the, and I spent so much time on the technology side of it and getting the movement right that there weren't, there weren't enough jokes in the show and does does the does the fact of your technical um, skill and the amount of work that's gone into it does that mean that you don't suffer from the sort of artistic long dark nights of the soul I think I'm always busy. I think that's the thing. So I, I do. I certainly do. Um, but um, generally not because I can always... I feel like I can't... I think when you're just try, lying there trying to think of a joke and not, one isn't coming, then that's, that's when you start going crazy with... create When you've got a block, when you can't come up with something. But I can always be very slowly working towards... A, finishing a sketch or finishing a joke which eventually might not work but I feel like I'm doing something I feel like I'm moving all the time albeit very slowly and so yeah I think it yeah I think you, you yeah I think one of the things that keeps me happy is being busy and uh, and so I don't have much angst I have angst about trying to make something work but I don't have angst about trying to come up with something because I'm always busy trying to make the last thing I came up with work. Yeah. And finally, what would it look like in your wildest dreams? Like, what's the, what's the end point? What do you wish you could one day do? I don't know. But that's, um, I don't know. I, I, it'd be lovely to do, uh, do more, uh, do more telly, do a, do a, bigger tour to just basically to get more people to know what I do but also the main the first thing I need to do is finish the fucking thing <laughs> I need to I need to I've been doing it 15 years but it's not finished it's not anywhere near finished which is what's really fun about it that I think I always tinker with things and I always play with things and I'm always interested in my next project and uh, and what's fun is that after Edinburgh realising because before Edinburgh I thought well this show is amazing I am going to take over the world and then afterwards you go no it's not but actually that's really exciting as well because I've still got some, maybe it's just like being busy I don't know so is there a sort of an end point where you're thinking you could come up with some franchisable 
behemoth, something like working with Cirque du Soleil or some kind of Blue Man Group-esque thing, where well, you've got this original creation and it could be put to work in some other capacity. Yeah, and the thing is that what's always fun is whenever I've done telly, like we did this morning and we did the Royal Variety, and when you get to talk to telly people, like when we did the Royal Variety, they flew in a uh, an LED screen. on a, And the first, it was the first time I'd, I'd never animated Little Howard on a black background. <laughs> uh, and the, one, of the, one of their directors went, well, why don't you do it on a black background? We'll have you on a black background. And so it looked like he's standing on stage next to you. And I went, oh, wow. Oh, wow, um, yeah. And, and that's so in that bit. And so I gave him a spotlight. They had me on a follow spot. And, and so we both, and he dressed in a tux. And, and that was... Love that was just great, and that was just great fun. And I was, and the reason they booked us was so someone could politely pre-water shit and take the piss out of the Queen, because um, that's what you had to do on the Royal Variety performance. But the previous year, um, someone in the Royal Party had got upset by something that someone on stage had done, uh, and so they wanted a safe way that cheeky little Howard could could take the piss out of the Queen. What was the um, gag? Uh, it's a gag that's been lots of other people have done since, but I came up with the first is. Um, Little Howard doesn't realise that the Queen's there and I keep on calling her mum and he thinks uh, that I've mistaken her for my mum uh, like the kid at school did. Uh, uh, and then he finally sort of shields his eyes and looks up and goes, oh, it's the lady of prime suspects. Um, which at the time the Queen had just come out. And, yeah, so it was, and that was the joke that when I wrote it, that's what signed the whole thing off. They went, that's it. That's the joke. And yeah, my... Yeah, so many of my things is is that you, you've got jokes, but the joke is the whole point of the... Yeah, I don't think I've got an Edinburgh show until there's the joke that makes the whole thing make sense. Um, so, uh, my brain's gone again. What was... what was? <laughs> what, we were talking about the future of... Yeah, what, so... What so, to be achieved. So, when we did this morning, uh, they said, well, we don't... Because I'd always done telly stuff with Little House sitting in a laptop, and they went, no, I can't do that. Can we just blue screen onto the, the, the seat? And I went... <gasps> Oh, yeah. Yes, you totally uh, can. And so we did it exactly how we do it a lot, a lot live on stage, but I animated him on a green background and they, they comped him onto the sofa. And so uh, Fern and Philip were looking at the corner of a sofa and we did, it wasn't live, but it was as live. It was pre-recorded just before the show and we did it in one take, an interview that I pre-animated oh scripting them. And just things like that are... Next stop, Andy Circus. Yeah, no, yeah, no, exa- yeah exa- exactly. So... so Whenever I've got to that sort of mainstream level of, of, uh, so I keep on peeking up into those things and then something happens and I get, cause I was just, I was on this morning to, I can't remember what I was promoting. I've done it twice and both times it was amazing fun. And we, the directors and the techs came up with a televisual way that I could do what I do in a more televisual way. And she's like, ah, oh, that's brilliant. And the things that would never occur to me because I haven't, at the time, didn't have a telly head and I've got a bit more of one now, worked in telly. Um, but yeah, so it would be lovely to do something that big. But I'm aware I've got a long way to do, to, I've got a lot of stuff to learn and to relearn about how uh, a mainstream audience can consume Little Howard and what I do. Um, but that's really exciting about, uh, yeah, how how that could work, and yeah, so I have some ambitions along those lines. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> 
So thank you to Howard, thank you to, to John at Sitting Room Comedy in Knaresborough, and thank you to Daryl Smith, of course, uh, for his tireless hashtag thanks Daryl work on the podcast. Um, thank you to everyone who voted in the online poll that I was running on the Facebook group. If you'd like to join the... To, this was a big poll to, for hundreds of you. Um, voted on that, which I was quite shocked by, uh, to determine what you'd like to hear more from on the show. Uh, I've got some cracking interviews coming up. I don't like to... You know I don't like to tell you who they are until they're in the can because plans can change and stuff, but I have got one of the gaffers of the UK comedy circuit. He's coming up soon. I've also got uh, someone who is making enormous waves uh, after many years of producing excellent sketch and character work someone uh, uh, who you will enjoy a little clue for those of you will i give you a clue no fuck off um so uh, that person is coming up soon an incredible uh, uh singer and impressionist is also coming up soon and hopefully someone very exciting that I met at a thing the other night, which I'll tell you about in the postamble. So uh, lots more stuff coming up. Um, if you would like to donate to the show or get all of that free stuff, the free comedy album, the compilation, of the best 150 episodes, blah, 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 the top 10, all the rest of it, um, simply go to comedianscomedian.com. Um, oh, yeah, I started talking about the Facebook group. Just to finish that thought, there are now over 5,000 of you in the Facebook group, and it's... It's not hard to mediate, but every so often I need to step in and go, just be nice. But I think I'm right in saying, and you could let me know in the group if, if you think I am, um, that we, you are, we are, I think, no, I'm talking positively, so I'll say you, you are admirably well behaved as, a, as an online community. So thank you to everyone in the Facebook group who manages to play in such a friendly way suggest things to each other uh, recommend things that the rest of the community would enjoy uh, apparently this new uh, Jim Carrey uh, uh, show on Netflix is supposed to be fantastic I haven't got to that yet but I was made aware of that thanks to the, the Facebook group so lots of tips in there for people who like us all are excited about uh, analysing comedy in far too much detail so <laughs> so uh, check that out if you're not already a member that is everything for now. I'll have a little chat with you in the post in just a moment. But I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks, Howard. What a lovely man. And what a what a brilliant series. What a... <laughs> reminds me of a line of mine from a previous show. What a fascinating series of decisions. Um, he's just so talented. So do seek out his work wherever you can find it. Because... Uh, it's funny asking someone to describe something that is animated. Obviously, if you've not seen the stuff, in podcasting is an audio medium at the moment, at least, and um, and you you just can't get your head around all of it until you've seen him live slash visually in some capacity. So check out more work from Howard, and that will do for now. Bye for now. Speak to you soon. So let's just talk briefly in a, in a postambular fashion about a thing I did this week. This is a very out-of-character thing. I was invited to the Palace of Westminster um, by my friend Sarah, who is uh, very high up, in fact, if not the originator of the charity Their World, which is a children's charity which does brilliant work all over the world and acts as a sort of umbrella for lots of different projects about improving the lives of disadvantaged children. And... Um, 
And as part of their 15th birthday celebrations, I was invited, along with numerous other people more exciting and famous than me, uh, and and more, uh, uh, that's not the fame, not being the only metric here, people who have also done a great deal more for charity than I have, or I'm sure ever will. Um, there were some real uh, stars of the charity world there, and it took place at the Palace of Westminster. And I just wanted to tell you about that. What you do is you go along to Portcullis House. And uh, this is not secret knowledge, but I didn't know about it. You go along to Portcullis House, which is just over the road from the Houses of Parliament, which are either the same thing as the Palace of Westminster or in it or around it. As you can see, I've done no research. You go into Portcullis House, which is like entering an airport. So you go through proper security checks and x-ray checks and all the rest of it. And you've got your photo ID, which I'm fairly sure no one looked at in the end. But it was a relief to have with me. And the guys in there have got really big guns, like really big, long, pointy machine guns. To the extent they're so long and pointy, you do think, is that actually going to be any good in a sort of close quarters thing? Perhaps Perhaps it is not for me, uh, with my extensive knowledge of uh, terrible action movies, to comment on such things. But they, I remember thinking, those are long guns. Like this, this room isn't that big that you would need such a long gun. But maybe there are uh, other reasons, arcane reasons I don't know about. So then you go into the, the, the sort of the holding pen bit, and then you go down an escalator, and then you realise you're. Go- then it all starts looking really oldy worldy, and. Um, and what do I mean? You know, it looks a bit more like the Houses of Parliament and less like a sort of glass office. And you walk past sort of statues. You definitely walk past a stone unicorn and a stone... I guess it was a lion. Am I right in thinking that those, the lion and the unicorn, that's our thing, right? Yeah. So uh, a couple of stone things. And it suddenly all starts to look like you're in a, a church or a cathedral or something. And you start going, oh, God, there are people scurrying back and forth who are important, who do important things. And it's easy in the entertainment industry to consider that fame is the same as importance. And then you go somewhere political and you go, oh, no, 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 no. Importance is very, very different to fame. So then you go around a bit and up into a sort of quadrangle where are parked something like eight to twelve hundred grand's worth of blacked out Range Rovers and also some red police cars, which I'm apparently I'm on. I'm of the belief that the red police cars are where they keep the guns. I don't know if that's fact. Um, and then you go up some steps and then you start to feel like you're back at school because you notice yourself being deferent and respecting everything and your shoulders go. And I'm wearing a suit at the time, a sort of a, a performing sort of suit, not a proper one, but nonetheless it's a suit and I'm wearing a tie. And I started to, I started to sort of bow and scrape. And that's part of, we've talked before about how much I, I didn't really enjoy school and it was a, a bit reminiscent of school. Lovely to be there, completely different circumstances, of course, but elements of the architecture and the way you are told to do things. Did I ever talk about this? You know, I did that um, that reality thing, Show Me the Funny, in 2010-11. And one of the experiences I had there, which was sort of the which was the sort of experience that I signed up to the show to have, which in the end weren't quite as... Uh, uh, they didn't come along as often as I hoped they would, but one of them was really like, oh, this is what I signed up for. And we trained for a day with the, the army uh, in, in Catrick, an army base in Catrick in North Yorkshire. And um, I realised, and I did stand-up about it at the time, which did not go well, but that was OK, because on that show you didn't get to see any stand-up. But I did some stand-up about how 
I reacted to the military. And it turned out that for all my kind of lefty leanings and, hey, man, you know, obviously the military are important and I respect them, but I would never want to be in the military. I'm like, oh, God, I, would I have been a conscientious objector in times of war? Who knows? I hope I never find out. But I found that for all of those kind of, you know, rebellious post-school, hey, man, I live outside the law, street performer kind of things... I actually quite enjoyed conformity. That's the, the experience that I went through was I sort of discovered that actually there's something quite something to which I seem a bit attuned, either by nature or nurture, to being told what to do and where to go. Because actually I felt probably I just worried less because I didn't get to make any decisions. So I found I found there was something quite calming about total obeisance. Is that the word? Obeyingness? obedience that sounds like he's being very fat maybe it's both maybe you're obeying your gluttony who knows anyway um there was something about that army experience that made me go all oh, right and i tried to turn that into jokes and I, it does annoy me that i never wrote down or recorded any of the gigs i did for that show seeing as none of them actually were not nothing substantial was ever shown on tv and i always i regard it as sort of lost material like oh i wish i'd Remember what that stuff was. I could do something with it now. But something similar started to happen. And by the time I met John Burkow, the Speaker of the House, who is sort of like John Sessions. God, I'm a huge fan of his now. Um, he's just an incredibly actorly politician. Really warm, really friendly. And ripped off this incredible 10-minute off-the-top-of-his-head speech about the, the charity where he was just sort of almost in one incredibly articulate breath welcoming everyone uh, to, the, to the event. He, um, he, I mean, that was... I remember watching him going, I've got to get him on the podcast, man. He's such a performer. He's incredible. He's the charisma on the man. It's unbelievable. Um, but by the time I sort of met him, he was the first person I met, and I was like, oh, oh God, you're you. I found myself like my inner... I, I, my inner calibration for groveling was set to maximum grovel. So I was almost kind of, I feel like I was bowing and retreating and hugging the wall and going, well, I don't deserve to be here. And honestly, I, it was lovely and everyone was lovely to me. And I met some uh, really fascinating people. Um, and uh, including my chum, uh, Sophie Scott, Professor Sophie Scott, uh, who is a wonderful neuroscientist who specialises in the science of laughter and comedy. We've worked together on a number of different things. Um, often with me or the audience being wired to something. So that was lovely to see Sophie. But basically, although everyone was lovely, I came away with that feeling of, oh, yes, this is what I do. Is this what we all do when faced with a big institution? It's like that question of you might not believe in the monarchy. You might be staunchly Republican, anti-monarchist. And if you get the opportunity to meet the Queen, probably part of you is thinking, well, I should at least meet the Queen. And then if you agree to meet the Queen, probably part of you the whole time is thinking, well, I'm, they've told me I have to bow, but I'm not going to bow because I don't believe in the thing. I don't believe on the basic principle that a God, brackets in which I personally don't believe, has said you're better than me. That doesn't, I can't square any of that. You know, I can't square the, the whole someone else's ancestor was a bigger murdering bastard than someone else's. Therefore, I think quoting Pratchett there. Um, I can't square any of that. And yet I'm sure most of us, the Queen would bob along the line and you would find yourself curtsying. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to not because of the circumstances, the pomp and the ceremony and all those things. And arguably, of course, that's why those things are there to ensure that you fall into line. So what am I saying? I'm just saying 
uh, my thanks to everyone involved for a really interesting couple of hours. And I suppose I'm just kind of guiltily confessing to to my inner groveler <laughs> that I really found myself in a position that I never had. And I suddenly went, oh, God, there are big politicians here and big people who are who do something worthwhile, like provably worthwhile. And it's all very well thinking, hey, I make people laugh. That's good. And it is good. And I respect and honour it. But there are people who have the power to change lives in a really lasting way. So that was a really special experience and uh, uh, something for which I'm very grateful. I found under the under some strata of my quasi-rebellious personality a, a natural groveller of which I'm not too proud. That'll do me for now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for everybody who sent me such brilliant uh, supportive emails about my recent... Um, it's not like a relapse or anything. I just talked briefly about... I think I think all I, I think people what were people were responding to I'm completely fine I'm very happy but I think I I nailed a thing briefly that a lot of people went oh yes I do that too of knowing that I'm doing things that perpetuate my anxiety but doing them anyway and a lot of people went I absolutely see that in myself and I'm doing it right now so if you're one of them don't panic you've got this you've got this speak to you soon Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.